Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sandra Hake from the Justus Liebig University in Gießen on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the University of Freiburg in the year 2000. You then moved on to the US where you did a postdoc with Lisa Denzin at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and a second one with David Ellis at the Rockefeller University in New York. You then moved back to Germany and became an independent group leader in 2006 at the Adolf Butenan Institute at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. And since November 2016, you are University Professor for Genetics at the Institute for Genetics at the Justus Liebig University in Gießen. And you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Okay, that's that's a very interesting question, I guess. Um, so I, I think it started very early on. So when I was a little child, I already was very interested in uh in nature i must say i think it's it's beautiful to go outside and and play uh outside uh and 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 see actually what is happening so um i moved with my family out of town i grew up in the city of aachen in germany and we moved a little bit outside and so i was able to actually yeah stroll around and uh, got very interested in what's happening so there were these ponds where of course the frogs lay eggs and you could see how the tadpoles hatched hatched and uh, i always uh, took some of them home and and watched they them develop and uh, so i got interested very early on and i think uh, science in in total um, is absolutely fascinating because we are all very curious about what's happening and um, so I, I, it was either biology or it was astrophysics, which I find is also absolutely fascinating and uh, kind of the queen of the sciences, I would say. But uh, for me, uh, it was a little bit too difficult with all the math behind it. So uh, in the end, it was biology and I never regret uh, to actually work on it. And uh, there was one episode, my my parents, they, they didn't have a lot of money, but uh, on Christmas time, I, I, I really remember it. Uh, I got a tiny little microscope. And uh, so after that, I was running around and, and <laughs> I took probes uh, from everywhere, from the ponds, from, from everything you got and, and looked under this microscope uh, to see what actually is happening there. And uh, I think that got me hooked and uh, school was fine with biology. And so, yeah, it was quite clear. I have to do that. So you settled for the small things instead of the big things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So coming to your science that centers around variants of the core histones and how they modulate structure and function of chromatin, I want to start in the year 2005. There you were first author of a paper investigating the function of serine 31 phosphorylation of histone variant H3.3. Yeah, to ease into this topic, uh, what is the difference of canonical H3 compared to its variant H3.3? So they are very similar. And um, so the canonical H3s and H3.3, they only differ in four, around four amino acids. And uh, so they are very, very similar. So there are some differences in the core region, uh, and this is uh, important for binding to the chaperone, so the proteins that actually deposit these histones into chromatin. Um, 
But then there is this really famous serine 31, which is only, which is unique to H3.3. The canonical histones uh, do not have this serine, they have an alanine. Um, and it's it, it becomes more and more clear, many groups are working on this now, that this serine is actually very important for the function of H3.3. So Genevieve Almuzny, who was in this podcast, already showed that it's very important for xenopus development. We have worked on it uh, with other groups um, to show that it also plays a role in transcription. While when I discovered this phosphorylation of the serine, actually it was uh, a mitosis marker. And uh, I, I still remember the beautiful pictures. I mean, uh, we, when I, I got when I looked through the microscope, because um, I, I think everybody dreams of that, to discover something which you didn't expect. And I looked into that and I saw, wow, it's mitotic cells and they have a pattern. And it was uh, seen at, at centromeres, around, surrounding centromeres. So that was a really nice discovery. And I think uh, it set the stage for, for many people to work on it. And so, yeah, so H3.3 differs in only few amino acids. Uh, on the protein level, but um, from the canonical H3s. But of course, like all the other uh, histone variants, uh, H3.3 is expressed throughout the cell cycle, while the canonical H3 uh, and also canonical histones are expressed only during S phase. So when the DNA is doubled and when you need to have more histones there to package up the DNA again. So the histone variants, actually, they have to be there all the time because they have specialized functions. And so that's one reason uh, why uh, I think histone variants are, are very, very interesting, although they have so small differences. You already mentioned that the serine uh, 31 modification is found during uh, mitosis, but what is, what is this function there? It's a very good question, and we still really don't know what it's doing there. Uh, a lot of people are working on it, and uh, we do not really know what it's doing there. It's uh, well, it, Since it also has a function in transcription, so it's very difficult, I think, to really pinpoint uh, its functional impact. And uh, it's very, it's, it's more difficult to do mutations uh, and then and see what the impact is on mitosis. And uh, so we really don't know yet. So in the following year, you looked at the mammalian, at all mammalian histone H3 variants, H3.1, H3.2, and H3.3, and the respective expression patterns and post-translation and modification. What makes uh, the histone H3 variants unique, so the other ones, uh, than H3.3, um, and which differences did you find? Well, so I, and uh, here I must really say, I teamed up with a fantastic colleague. So Benjamin Garcia, at the time he was a postdoc in Don Hunt's lab, and only together with him, we actually could do the study because he uh, was able to do quantitative mass spectrometry. At the time, very difficult to do, but uh, so we teamed up and uh, could show uh, that the pattern of histone modifications is really different between the different histone variants and, and the canonical histones. And it's still debated whether H3.1 and H3.2 are different uh, as well, they only differ in one amino acid, or whether they are just uh, canonical histone H3, so kind of grouped together. It's, 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 it's a lot of discussion uh, on that. Um, but what we, what we saw is that you find a lot of... Um, active marks, so marks that are associated with transcriptional activation on H3.3, 
and you find the more repressive mark on the canonical H3.1 and H3.2. And uh, even they differ uh, between each other. So H3.2 had an enrichment in H3K27 trimethylation, which is a mark of facultative heterochromatin. So it, it looks like even these, what, what people call canonical histones, uh, at least between H3.1 and H3.2, might be different. And this is uh, why we, Dave and I, developed this, this uh barcode hypothesis at the time um yeah <laughs> can you can you go into the details of that a little bit so so we we were thinking um so this was when i was with david ellis so and i must say he's a fantastic mentor and um so uh was one of the happiest years uh in my scientific life uh, being with dave ellis uh and so he um so he became member of the uh, American Society of Sciences, National American Society of Sciences, and he could write kind of a review piece for PNAS. And he asked me whether I want to do this together with him. And uh, we didn't want to write just a normal review where we are citing the literature, but we wanted to do something that's more provocative. You know, kind of, kind of in older days, I love that, in these older days when, when people just put out an hypothesis and then everybody tried to dispute it. But that brings science forward, at least in my opinion. And we wanted to do that uh, and, and make a very provocative hypothesis. And the idea was that uh, these, these H3 variants, and we, we kind of put forward that H3.1 and H3.2 are also different from each other in function, that they kind of barcode the chromosomes. And so that uh, in the way that H3.2 is found at facultative heterochromatin and keeps it as facultative heterochromatin. H3.1 is more in the constitutive heterochromatin and keeps it closed because we also found H3K9 trimethylation there. And on the other hand, you have H3.3, which is more the active part and keeps kind of euchromatin open. And so you have kind of a barcoding. And, and this is also what we saw when we looked at chromosomes where these H3 variants, at these GFP-tagged H3 variants actually localize. You find barcodings on the uh, so pattern, like stripes on the, on the uh, chromosomes, which is kind of in favor of our very... Mm -hmm provocative hypothesis. <laughs> so um, H3.1 and H3.2 would be more in the inactive chromatin space and the H3.3 more in the active chromatin space. So indicating that H3.3 would be deposited during transcription and keeping the chromatin open or... Yeah, so, so that was at the time kind of the hypothesis and it kind of fits with the idea at the time we knew that her A is one of the chaperones, and, and then we find actually H3.3 at uh, euchromatic regions. Um, so you have it also in enhancers and at, at promoters and so on, so, so to keep it open. But nowadays, we know it's much more complicated and uh, beautiful work from also Dave's group, but also Genevieve's group and others showed that there's a, a second chaperone complex, so the DAX ATRX complex, and that actually also can bind to H3.3, and then it deposit this histone variant into heterochromatic regions, in particular at uh, repetitive regions. So, so it's much more complicated than, than we actually think it is. So then later on in 2010, you identified and characterized two unknown primate-specific histone H3 variants. So how did you find them? Where are they located and what is their function? Yeah, so I mean, to, to find them, I must say, I'm not a bioinformatician. Uh, I really not. I, I need the help of people who know to do that. 
But uh, I was sitting there, and at the time, uh, I, I just went through and sifted through all the, the genomic data and, and looked at what H3 sequences actually are there. And uh, there are a lot of H3 sequences, uh, so they were duplicated uh, during evolution, and many of those might be pseudogenes. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I just thought, okay, uh, there are a lot of pseudogenes, at least those that were named pseudogenes, uh, that actually have um, a completely open reading frame and they look like histones on the amino acid sequence. And so I just designed primers for all of them and did PCR with different tissues and cells. And, uh, and then, lo and behold, actually, there was one H3 variant uh, or two of them that actually came up and they were expressed. And in the end, this was what we named them, uh, H3.X and H3.Y. Um, and, and this is how it all started. And very soon we then found out, and this was then when I started my own group and I had a PhD student, a uh, very, very good PhD student, uh, Sonja Wiedemann, who actually um, worked on this uh, histone variant then and could show that it's expressed only during stress and in particular regions in the brain. And uh, so it was a very, very interesting histone variant uh, we actually found. Yeah, you also followed up on that and uh, identified the chaperone, which deposits it on chromatin, right? Yeah, so the the, the, the interesting part is that H3.Y, the, the sequence of H3.Y, when you compare it to H3.3 or the other H3s, uh, it has in the core histone sequence region, it looks like uh, it would be a Dux ATRX her A binder. So it looks very much like H3.3. But when we uh, actually identified the chaperones, we found out that although it has the sequence uh, to bind Dux and here A, it only bound here A, but it never bound to Dux ATRX. And that was a lot of that was a real surprise to us. Uh, we, we, we really didn't understand why this is. And with a lot of mutation analysis, we found out that in addition to that very conserved sequence in the core, you need some additional amino acids uh, for actually Dux binding. And, and this is why H3.Y is different from H3.3. And so it, it of course, uh, then, then has a different function than H3.3 must have. You also looked then um, at the modification H3K79 dimethylation and it's writing enzyme in dictyostelium. And I, <laughs> I, I, I found this paper and I was really, uh, yeah, I didn't know what dictyostelium is. So why did you pick this model organism and what did this tell you in this context of the um, histone modification? Well, I, I really didn't pick that. This was uh, where another group approached us um, and they were working with dictyostelium. So the, the beauty of this model system is that uh, you can go from a single eukaryotic cell. It can start to differentiate and really forms kind of a, a multicellular organism. It's, it's beautiful. You can actually monitor that. And uh, they were interested in looking how chromatin changes might affect these processes. Okay. And, uh, and then what we found is H3K79 methylation and dot one. And so we worked on that. But yeah, it's, it's not me. I, okay. <laughs> it really was a collaboration and we were helping another group. Okay. Yeah, so then you switched uh, histones and identified H2A set 2.2, uh, very long name. Um, so what did you learn from that? So H2AZ 2.2, uh, and I must give credit where credit is due. Uh, this is where my uh, former PhD student, Clemens Bönisch, uh, actually had a look at. And, and he did the same, what I did for H3 point, the H3 variants and looked whether there are pseudogenes or anything happening. And he found that 
there's a predicted uh, splice, alternative splice form of the H2AZ2 gene. So there are two H2AZ genes in the genome and mammals. Um, they're called H2AFZ and H2AFZ, but um, so the second one actually can be alternatively spliced or is predicted to. And we check that. And in, in, indeed, H2AZ2.2 is an alternative splice form. And it only differs in the C-terminal part because it uses a different last exon. And so the, 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 the remaining part is completely identical, but it's a little bit shorter and just has, I, I have to go back, nine amino acid differences in the end. And um, that, that doesn't sound very um, like a big deal. But what we saw is when we expressed it recombinantly is that this histone variant, when you, when you try to make octomers and in the end to make nucleosomes, these octomers actually fall apart extremely easily. You can only get uh, these octomers stabilized when you do, when you add them together with DNA so that you actually form nucleosomes. And these nucleosomes also are destabilized extremely fast. And uh, even more than another variant that many people know, this is H2ABBD or now called H2AB, where, where people thought this is the one that destabilizes nucleosomes the most. But in, what we found is when we compared it that H2AZ2.2 actually destabilizes it most. And H2AZ2.2, similar to H3.Y, they're both primate-specific histone variants. And uh, they are all expressed mainly in the brain, so in human brain tissues. And for us, it's really quite puzzling to understand why do you have a histone variant that destabilizes nucleosomes in, brain, in the brain and cells of the brain? Uh, we still don't know that because it's difficult to do experiments. Um, well, you cannot use a mouse. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not want to go into apes and uh, we cannot do any functional experiments in humans. So, uh, and with, with just with cells, you have to find the exact cell type. And that's, that's very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine that. And you then came back to histone H3 and, and identified a novel heterochromatic mark H3K56 trimethylation. Again, the question, how did you identify it and what is its function? Did, you, did it change the view on heterochromatin for you? So uh, we have, again, this goes back to my work uh, in Dave's lab together with Benjamin Garcia, uh, where we did all these different mass spectrometry studies of different histone modifications. And we got a long list also of novel histone PTNs. And uh, so nothing was known about it. We just saw that they are actually there. So they, they exist. Uh, and so we generated antibodies or tried to generate antibodies against these histone modifications. And some of these antibodies failed. They were not specific enough and, and others they worked out. And one of this is uh, H3K56. We started with monomethylation, but also worked on them with H3K56 trimethylation. And uh, this is, I think, interesting because it's not a histone modification in the tail region. Most of the modifications are in this flexible tail, but it's within the core. And you have to think about it, how the enzymes actually get access to the core. It has to be somehow accessible. So, so sorry to interrupt you here, but when does the core start? So when does, or when does the tail start? Do you have a number? Of so it's around, I mean, in, in H3, it's around amino acid, uh, around amino acid 40, where the core actually okay. starts. So uh, and when you look at the structure, K56 is in the outside, on the outside of the nucleosome. So it is accessible. Um, but how does it then affect uh, DNA or, or binding partners or function? 
And uh, it was very, what we found is that it actually behaved very similar to H3K9 trimethylation. So uh, we, we, we always had to be very careful that our antibody does not cross-react with or recognizes H3K9 trimethylation because they looked very, very similar and uh, had similar enzymes that actually set the mark or involved in setting the mark. Uh, it's found in heterochromatin, but there are some little differences during development where actually this, these modifications are, are uh, switching. And, and we are still working on it with, with other groups to find out more about the role of the system modification. So then in 2017 and 18, you published two papers on PWWP2A, which binds to H2AZ containing nucleosomes. So what is the function of this protein? So PWWP2A, and I'm, I'm still, uh, well, we, we should have renamed it. It's, uh, <laughs> every time you give a talk, <laughs> you have to excuse about this name, which takes up a lot of time. Um, so PWWP2A, uh, we found in a, in a large mass spectrometry screen, we, we made together with uh, the group of Matthias Mann in Munich. Um, he really is, a, is an expert in mass spectrometry and um, so here we identified uh, binding factors to the different H2AZ variant nucleosomes. And PWP2A was one of several proteins uh, we found they bind or are enriched on nucleosomes containing H2AZ when comparing them to H2A nucleosomes. And PWP2A at the time, nothing was known about it. You can put it up in PubMed and, and nothing came up. And I, I always love to work on something that's not known. So that was our... Yeah, I just wanted to say it's a good place to start. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the end, it's whatever you find is novel, you know, uh, and you don't have to compete with the, with the big shots in the field and uh, where a lot is known already. And so uh, this is why we also choose to work on PWP2A. And in the end, it really turns out to be uh, ex an extremely interesting protein. So um, it, it has, it's a... It has several domains, so it has proline retregions, it has uh, a large stretch of unknown function, and there's no homology to anything else, uh, to any other protein, and then a serine-rich stretch, and then the name giving PWWP domain. And this is a domain shown with other proteins that it rec recognizes chromatin by binding through H3K36 trimethylation or can bind DNA. And what we found is that, indeed, PWP2A directly interacts with H2AZ. So it, it sees and binds the histone variant. And it does so with this large internal stretch that has no homology whatsoever. And uh, so and it binds extremely well and very strongly to that. And, and when we look at it, PWP2A actually sits at regulatory regions in chromatin, where we also find uh, H2AZ, so at enhancers at the plus one and minus one nucleosome surrounding the transcriptionist outside and uh, seems to regulate when we take it out to regulate transcription. So there are set over 700 genes deregulated when we take out uh, PWP2A. And then the, the fun part actually started. So when we looked at these cells, uh, these were tissue culture cells, um, they had a clear defect in mitosis. And we did... Um, movies of cells uh, so that we can actually follow up the division, so mitosis. And we found that, that some of them actually took around 15 hours to get through mitosis. Mitosis is usually very fast. It's just an hour or an hour and a half. And now it took 15 hours for them to, to actually continue and go through that. And, and when we looked closely, we saw that these 
mitotic cells, they switched back and forth between prometaphase and metaphase. And this is something we haven't seen before. Usually these cells stuck, there's a checkpoint. They're usually stuck at metaphase, but they don't do that. So that was really weird. And we, we have an idea what might be happening. So that's something we are working on and want to publish soon. So I can't tell you now, but, um, but, but, but it was very surprising. And in frogs, we went into frogs. Uh, there it's absolutely crucial for head development. So it seems to be playing a role in neural crest stem cell migration and then differentiation. And so there's a very strong effect. So yeah, then I won't don't want to go down this road uh, furthermore and, and wait for your hopefully bioarchive paper coming out soon then. <laughs> so uh, not many people are working on histone variants, right? So it's Markus Buschbeck uh, maybe and Genevieve Falmusny and both have been on this podcast before. Do you see this as an advantage or a disadvantage uh, that the community is rather small compared to other fields maybe? I think it's an advantage. Um, it's And the field, I mean, yes, it appears small if you compare to the general chromatin field, but we have our uh, histone variant meeting, the EMBO International Histone Variant Meeting that usually takes place every two years. Uh, not this time because of pandemic issues, but, um, and there you have about 120 people or so around and, and you know each other. And it's it's kind of like family. I love this meeting because you come back, you know the people, uh, you know what they are, uh, what they are doing, and you. It's a very friendly community, and uh, it's it's great to exchange ideas, exchange data, and so I think it's, yeah, it's 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 fantastic to work in such an environment. And uh, well, there are so many things, system variants. Um, are involved in uh, and, and still needs to be discovered. And so I'm happy uh, to work in this field. So there's place for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And of course, everything is connected. I mean, it's, it's not that you're saying, well, you only work on histone variants. Uh, variants are uh, also have an impact on DNA methylation, on the histone modification patterns, on opening and closing chromatin, on, on binding of factors, on how non-coding RNAs might be bound uh, and so on. So Remodeling. I mean, you need all the remodelers to put in histone variants or to slide them, and they might be specific for particular variants. So it's all connected. Yeah. So coming to that connectedness, uh, what are you working on right now, and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years in your lab? So at the what we would like to do um, is to get a real functional map of the histone variant interactomes, uh, and there are functionality. So what, what do I mean by that? Uh, we, we have finished, I think, our mass spec screens together with Matthias Mann. So we have now the interactomes on the one hand for the free histone variant. So this is the chaperones that, that bind to them. In addition, we have the interactomes of the, the histone variants uh, within the nucleosome. So what factors are binding there? So With that, we are now systematically um, tagging, knocking down, and so on, all these interacting factors to get an idea what the function of these histone variants are. You have to think about H2AZ, for example, and this is our favorite histone variant at the moment. Um, it's very enigmatic because it is involved in almost all DNA-based processes you can imagine. So it plays a role in the activation of transcription, but also in the silencing of transcription, in DNA damage repair, in cell cycle control, in differentiation, and so on. You name it. So how can such a little histone variant uh, 
fulfill all these different functions. So we think this is uh, due to the binding of these different complexes. And so we are looking into these binding factors. We are doing mass spec with those to see what complexes actually they constitute. We look where they actually bind, where do they sit in chromatin, um, when are they expressed, and actually what happens when you take them out of the cell. So what function do they have? And with that, we are building up a map, an interacting map, but a functional interacting map of how histone variants, in particular H2Z, actually are functioning. This sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end and did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Uh, yeah, of, of course. I guess everybody um, is, is hitting such a wall or, or yeah, such a question. And um, so from the, the scientific standpoint, I must say... Um, At one point, so I started off not in chromatin, I started off in uh, molecular immunology and did my PhD and also my postdoc within this field. And at the end of my, my postdoc, um, I wasn't quite sure whether I really want to stay in, in, in molecular immunology and I wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, and then, well, that's kind of, I think, fate or whatever you want to call it, just a coincidence, but Dave Ellis turned up at New York, gave a talk, And I was so well completely impressed and fascinated by, by his work that I went into that, uh, went up to him after the talk and really asked him for a postdoc. And so I did a second postdoc. Um, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and science-wise, uh, we when I was a group leader, we had one project. Uh, I, I really remember that. And we, we had one project that was fantastic. We, we had data after one year of a PhD project, we have data, we were thinking, wow, that will be the next cell paper. Everything was fitting. And in the end, we, we found out uh, tiny little things happened. And then we found out that the antibody was cross-reacting with something. Uh, we, we had peptides, the peptide batch when we changed it uh, wasn't working anymore. And so our, our big story really scrambled down. And And that's something where you have to find out, okay, do we have to stop here or can we go on? And at one point, and this is the hardest part, you have to say, okay, we are stopping. We are not going further. We are doing something else. And uh, that's hard, but sometimes you have to do that. Yeah, I can imagine that those decisions are not easy to, to take. In the last 32 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed along this journey? Well, I think uh, you, you covered it very well. So I think our uh, or the most important findings, I, I would say, is on the one hand that uh, my work showed that you have to have a look at these system modification patterns on, on different histones. And um, you, you can learn, although it's in the beginning a very descriptive work, but you can actually learn a lot about uh, functionality of, of histones and then later on, of course, their role in transcription, for example, by looking at different uh, histone modification patterns and discovering new modifications um, that lead the way to new discoveries. And on the other hand, I think the discovery of novel histone variants uh, actually show us that there's so much more to discover. Uh, 
sometimes we think we are we are working on, on stuff that is already known and we are just going for the tiny little things in mechanism. Is it, is it this way or this way around? But there are big things still waiting for us to be discovered. And uh, I think maybe this is what my work also can show you. <laughs> so maybe I, I have just sort of another question. So when you talk about histone modification patterns, do you mean the pattern along the chromatin or on one single nucleosome? Uh, I, I mean the pattern on a single nucleosome. So when, when you when you see, and this is what Dave always liked to say, every, every amino acid matters. And uh, I think it is not only every amino acid matter, but every modification matters. And, and the combinatorics of modifications you find on a nucleosome at a particular place in chromatin actually matters. And this is kind of this histone code, what Dave and others put out. And I think... Uh, this is what these patterns are all about. So thank you, Sandra, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.